to some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters. Hi, I'm Sha. I'm Ollie. And we are Creeping It in the Family, a podcast where we dish details about all things horror. Episode 41. Yeah. I'm on it. I don't it, want I'm, it. I've already started watching Sweeney Todd, and I've already written episode 42. So I've. I've uh, you're getting cocky now, though, so it's as good a No, that's what I normally point. do. I forget about the midweeks, but because I've started watching the films before the midweek, I think, oh, yeah, there's going to be another episode in between then, so I need to skip a number. That's so, yeah, impressive. episode 41, you're. Spin-off. We need to stop calling them spin-offs, really. Yeah, because it's not a spin-off, because we do it every other week. Yeah, mini-sode. Mini-sode, I like it. Uh, Yeah, this one is a really heavy one. I I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't actually know how much was involved until I'd researched it properly, so I was a little bit... In fact, I was a lot emotional when I was researching this last night. So this story is a heavy one. It's really heavy and involves the torture and murder of a minor. So if this is particularly upsetting or triggering for you, I recommend that you skip this one out because it's it's bad. Right. So I firstly came across this case a few years ago while surfing the horror movies page on Facebook. It's a really awful community, so I tend not to post on there because people can be really shitty. Right. But it's a great place to get movie recommendations. Like, there's some really good recommendations on there. I came across a movie that wasn't for the faint of heart. It literally said, quote, not for the faint of heart. And I immediately had to watch it, and it hit a downward spiral. Right. So not many movies affect me, but this one was horrific. And I also read the book with the same name from Jack Ketchum. So the case I'm talking about today is the case of Sylvia Likens and the film that it's based on. So, well, the film that took inspiration from it is The Girl Next Door and it's based off the book, based on the case of Sylvia Likens. So let's get into it. Sylvia Likens was born into a large, poor family from way across the pond in southern Boone country. Her father, Lester, had only been educated up until the 8th grade and her mother, Betty, wasn't much better. So they undertook a lot of different jobs just to make ends meet. He'd had a laundry route, worked in factories and had even owned a small restaurant, though unsuccessful in his owning of it. He had also travelled with carnivals selling food from a concession cart and it was uh, to this work to which he and his wife decided to return in the summer of 1965. It provided money, but they couldn't take the children with them, and there were four of them that needed looking after. The oldest child, Diana, was grown up and married, so she was absolutely fine. But the two boys, Danny and Benny, were placed with their grandparents, and that left the girls, Sylvia and Jenny. Jenny was the youngest, but had been inflicted with polio as a child. She was quiet and very meek, potentially because of the disease that she had made, uh, that, that had made her really insecure. She had a limp. She was really sickly from the polio. Sylvia was definitely the more confident out of the two of them and was nicknamed Cookie. She was said by many to be extremely pretty, but when she smiled, she often did so with a closed mouth because she had a missing front tooth. But she was stunning. I mean, if you see a picture of this girl, she's gorgeous. Right. She's 16 years old. Right. Sylvia and Jenny's parents thought their prayers of finding someone to look after the two had been answered when they were introduced through a mutual friend to Gertrude Banaszewski, uh, who was known as Gertrude Wright for a short period of 
that short period of time. She lived in a big rented house at the corner of East New York and Denny. She told the Lakens that she was more than willing to look after Sylvia and Jenny for a sum of $20 a week. And the thing is, Gertrude wasn't a stranger to childcare because she had seven children of her own to care for. And the $20 would have been put to really good use. She was struggling to pay the bills. There was, in age order, Paula, who was 17, John, who was 12. That's not in age order. Right. I'm not going to have to remember Sorry. all these names, am I? No. So there was Paul. The only one you really need, ones you really need to remember, are Paula and Stephanie. So there was Paula, seventeen; Stephanie, fifteen; John, twelve; Marie, eleven; Shirley, ten; and James and Dennis, who were eighteen months. The six oldest children ha- all had the last name Benazuski because their father was Gertrude's ex-husband, John Benazuski. The youngest child, Dennis, had the last name of his father, Dennis Wright. Gertrude said he was in Germany serving in the army at the time. It's said that there was almost immediately a clash between Sylvia and Gertrude's eldest daughter, Paula, right from the very beginning of their stay in 1965, and things only took a downward spiral from there. The first massive issue came from Gertrude not receiving the $20 that had been promised to her by Sylvia and Jenny's parents. Jenny testified in court that Gertrude had taken the two girls upstairs and slapped Jenny, saying to them, well, I took care of you two bitches for a week for nothing. The money order arrived the next day, but by then Gertrude had already gotten a taste for punishments. So much so that Sylvia, the stronger one out of her and Jenny, because remember Jenny was inflicted with polio, yep. would often plead to take the beatings for a younger sister. I'd plead... No, no, no actually, you wouldn't. I wouldn't plead to take it. In fact, I'd probably encourage you to take them for me, really. Fair enough. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you are so welcome. So now without looking at a picture of Gertrude... so. This is my perception. So you've heard a little bit about Gertrude now. If you had an image of Gertrude in your mind, what does she look like? So is Gertrude in the good-looking one, like the really good-looking one, is it? Gertrude is the woman who's looking after Sylvia and Jenny. With the, uh, the rest kids. of her kids. Uh, brown hair, mm-hmm. long brown hair. She wears quite puffy dresses. When, when was this set? What? 1965. Wears quite big dresses. Um... Not scruffy, but a bit tatty, a bit worn down. Mm-hmm. Why? I was just wondering, because a lot of people get the perception <clears throat> of when you first look into this, like like a Miss Trunchbull type, quite strongly built, muscular, regimented, hair scraped back, bare face of makeup. But actually, it was quite the opposite. And you've described her. I, I want to show you a picture afterwards, because you've been pretty dead on. Uh, Gertrude was frail and underweight, but she had two weapons she used for corporal punishment. A fraternity-style paddle and a thick leather belt that was left behind by her, ex John, uh, her ex-husband, John Banaszewski. Gertrude began using the paddle on Sylvia and Jenny for various offences, one of these being for when she assumed, with no proof, that the girls had been stealing. In fact, they were actually just exchanging soft drink bottles for change at a nearby grocery. When she suspected Sylvia of stealing... Gertrude used matches to burn the girls' fingers. Sometimes Gertrude felt too weak from her asthma to discipline the girls properly, so Paula, her eldest, began to help her. Paula once punched Sylvia so hard in the face that she broke her own wrist in the process. When she returned home with the cast on her arm, she used it to hit Sylvia hard again. Gertrude and Paula would try to convince the entire neighbourhood that Sylvia was a thief, a liar and a prostitute. Gertrude told everyone that would listen that Sylvia was a sex worker and that she was three months pregnant. This is actually completely untrue, as the medical examiner concluded Sylvia was not pregnant at the time of her death, nor could she have been. 
actually it was 17 year old Paula so Gertrude's Gertrude's eldest daughter that was pregnant because she'd gotten pregnant with a middle-aged married man a few months earlier but the man broke up with her upon finding out that Paula was pregnant with his child Gertrude had spread the lies about Sylvia being pregnant to cover up the fact that it was Paula who was carrying the man's child Gertrude refused to believe that Paula was pregnant because Paula was a good girl yeah Gertrude was also determined to ruin any relationships Sylvia and Jenny had formed with others Although Sylvia and Jenny were close to Gertrude's 15-year-old daughter, Stephanie, Gertrude and Paula started a rumour that Sylvia had told Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, that Stephanie and Paula were prostitutes. Sylvia never said any such thing, but the rumour provoked Coy to attack Sylvia and torment her with the help of the other kids. At separate points, Jenny Lakins was also forced to beat her own sister, otherwise face more corporal punishment from Gertrude. So the sister with polio was forced to beat Sylvia. Fucking hell. In order to escape any more punishment. Jesus. It gets worse. It's fucking dire. Things only began to get worse for poor Sylvia, and she began to take the brunt of the physical punishments. During her few months living at the Benazewski house, this is a few months, this is all she was there for, Sylvia was subjected to some of the most horrific abuse and torture on record in America. It first started with verbal abuse and paddlings, and then Gertrude started hitting, punching and slapping Sylvia. Gertrude then invited her children to start hitting Sylvia and pushing Sylvia down the stairs for entertainment. Upon hearing rumours of Sylvia's pregnancy, Paula kicked Sylvia in her genitals. Another time at dinner, Paula and another neighbourhood boy force-fed Sylvia a hot dog so full of condiments that Sylvia vomited after she'd eaten it. Sylvia was then forced to eat the resulting vomit. Fucking hell. On numerous occasions, Sylvia was also forced to eat faeces and drink urine, including the contents of Gertrude's one-year-old son's diaper. Not only that, but she began to get more of an audience. Kids from the neighbourhood began to crowd the home to not only witness the horrific abuse, but to partake in it too. They would practice their judo by hurling Sylvia into walls, kicking her hard and beating her until she could barely stand. Some of the older neighbourhood kids used her as an ashtray, burning her with cigarettes and stubbing out the cigarette butts on her. On another occasion, Gertrude and a bunch of teenagers from the neighbourhood watched as Sylvia was forced to undress, stripping completely naked in the living room before having to insert an empty Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina. Her only escape was school, and even after all the abuse, it became compromised because Sylvia's grades were slipping. As her guardian, Gertrude had to actually go in and put on a facade, managing to convince the staff that she was equally as concerned about Sylvia's future and her prospects. Fucking hell. It's awful. Yeah, isn't it? After several weeks, though... How old is... 16 years old, Sylvia. She was just a baby. After several weeks, though... Gertrude forbade Sylvia to attend school any longer because Sylvia had admitted to stealing a gym uniform after Gertrude refused to buy her one, even though Sylvia's parents had sent extra money for one. Lester and Betty Likens did visit Sylvia and Jenny on multiple occasions throughout their three-month stay at the Benazookis, so the parents did visit them. Gertrude wasn't able to work much except for some occasional ironing and babysitting work due to her chronic bronchitis and her medications for the ailment. So meals were scarce around the Badazuki house. When Lester and Betty visited the girls, they often took them out to get a soda and a hamburger, as Sylvia and Jenny always complained of hunger. Not once on any of these outings did Sylvia or Jenny mention the abuse taking place in the house. The main speculation as to why the girls never mentioned Gertrude and the children's abuse can be attributed to a mental state known as learned helplessness. 
A psychological definition of the term describes it as a phenomenon that occurs when a subject is conditioned to expect pain, suffering or discomfort with no way of escape. Often, a subject is conditioned with minor abuse in the beginning, leading to more and more severe pain and or injury. When repeated conditioning that escalates gradually, a subject is taught not only to expect pain and injury, but to accept it without objection or attempt to stop the abuse. In other words, the victim just stops trying. The victim starts to believe that everything that happens to them is out of their control and there is nothing they can do to change it. They believe it is fruitless to even try to escape. These acts of vile torture and humiliation were not enough and after every single beating that Sylvia sustained, she would be forced into a bathtub of scalding hot water in order to cleanse her of her sins. Continuing to believe Sylvia was engaging in sex work 24 hours a day, Gertrude repeatedly burned Sylvia's fingers with matches, kicked her in the genitals and paddled and beat her. After several weeks of torture, Sylvia became incontinent due to extensive internal injuries to her kidneys. When Gertrude saw that Sylvia had started wetting the bed, she banished Sylvia to the basement. Sylvia was no longer to be upstairs in the house. She was forced to sleep and eat limited meals of crackers and water in the cold, dark basement on nothing but a pile of old clothes on the cement floor. Jesus. So they'd, hit, they'd beat her so hard she could no longer control the bladder. No, that's fucking mental. It's important to note that although Stephanie, the 15-year-old, did nothing to stop the abuse that Sylvia was forced to endure, she did try on several occasions to sneak extra food and clothing to Sylvia. Sylvia's sister, Jenny, would visit Sylvia in the basement as much as she could, although Jenny was still attending school full-time and wasn't home for most of the abuse that took place. On a routine basis, Paula, 12-year-old Johnny Banaszewski, Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, and Richard Hobbs, a neighbour, would hit and lacerate Sylvia's body until she fell unconscious. Soon, Sylvia's body was completely covered in sores, lesions, scrapes, cuts and burns. The baths she was placed in quickly became baths with salt water. Sylvia would writhe and scream in pain, but she couldn't overpower Gertrude due to her extensive injuries. It became so depraved that Gertrude would actually charge neighbourhood kids five cents to witness her and her children cut, mutilate and abuse a naked Sylvia. At one point, a neighbour did make an anonymous report to authorities after seeing the condition of Sylvia and Jenny. A public health nurse was sent to the house to investigate. The nurse entered the house and questioned Gertrude but the nurse didn't see any visible signs of distress. Gertrude simply told the nurse that she had kicked Sylvia out of the house for being a prostitute and had no idea where Sylvia was. The nurse believed her and left. At this point, Sylvia was in an advanced stage of dehydration and malnourishment, and the coroners said that that linked to her death in the end. Sylvia did try several times to scream and make noise from the basement to alert the neighbours, but her screams were never heard by anyone outside the house. The next-door neighbour, Phyllis Vermilion, even witnessed Gertrude and Paula beating Sylvia in person on two separate occasions, but never notified the police out of fear Gertrude and Paula would potentially get revenge if they worked out she had been the one to go to the police. Incidents like forcing Sylvia to eat hot soup with her fingers, only to have it snatched away when she tried, occurred multiple times a day to Gertrude and her children's enjoyment. Eventually, Sylvia was allowed back upstairs as long as she learned not to wet the bed. However, Sylvia's incontinence failed her and she, when she wet the bed again the next day as punishment, she was forced to masturbate in front of all the children with an empty Coca-Cola bottle. As all the other children were at school or otherwise unable to understand what was going on in the case of the infant, what they weren't aware of was Richard Hobbs. 
Richard Hobbs was a neighbourhood boy and he often came over to the Banazuki house to visit Gertrude, whom he called a friend. It's widely assumed that 37-year-old Gertrude had a sexual relationship with 15-year-old Richard. Richard Hobbs took part in probably the worst thing that was done to Sylvia in her time at the Banazuski house, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. As a result, Richard Hobbs was also tried and convicted of Sylvia's torture and murder. After the multiple bedwetting incidents, which were no fault of Sylvia's, the damage to her kidneys was just too great from all the abuse, Gertrude decided Sylvia's punishment would be something more permanent. She asked one of the children to bring her her sewing kit, and Sylvia was ordered to strip naked in front of Richard and the other kids. Gertrude proceeded to ask her daughter Marie to heat up a sewing needle with a match and carve the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, directly into Sylvia's stomach. Sylvia wailed and cried from the unimaginable pain due to the burns and sores covering her body already. When Gertrude was unable to finish the tattoo, Richard Hobbs took over and finished it, only after asking Gertrude how to spell the word prostitute. Gertrude took Jenny with her to the grocery store while Richard worked so that Jenny wouldn't try to stop him. After the tattoo was complete, Richard and 10-year-old Shirley Banaszewski heated up an old iron poker and attempted to brand a letter S into Sylvia's chest. Sylvia passed out from the pain. After she regained consciousness, Coy Hubbard arrived just in time to tie her up, throw her down the stairs into the basement and slam her into the wall several times. Sylvia passed out again. That night after Jenny returned home from the grocery store, she went to visit Sylvia in the basement. Sylvia showed her the tattoo and the branded S on her chest. That night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny, I'm going to die, I can tell. The next day, Gertrude panicked that someone would notice Sylvia's injuries. She then dictated a letter that Sylvia was forced to write to her parents, implying that she was a prostitute and had run away from the Banazuki house. Gertrude also made sure to include in the letter that Sylvia had been tortured and mutilated by a random group of boys after providing them sex. As a last step in ensuring her alibi was airtight, Gertrude instructed Jenny and Johnny to take Sylvia to a wooded area nearby and leave her to die. Perhaps, unfortunately, the plan was never executed. After Sylvia overheard the plan to leave her in the woods, she made her one attempt to escape out the front door. However, because of her serious injuries, Gertrude caught her in time and hit her in the face with a curtain rod. With the help of Coy Hubbard, Gertrude tied Sylvia up in the basement and beat her until she was unconscious. When Sylvia awoke and tried to make for the stairs, she collapsed and Gertrude stepped on her face with the full weight of her body. It's possible this is the final head injury that caused Sylvia's brain hemorrhage, which directly led to her death. Upon hearing from Coy what had happened to Sylvia, Stephanie Banaszewski rushed to the basement, carried an emaciated Sylvia upstairs, gave her a warm bath and clean clothing. She laid Sylvia on her bed upstairs, where Sylvia regained consciousness briefly. Realising Stephanie was trying to save Sylvia's life, Gertrude threw open the bedroom door and started to hit Sylvia in the face with a book. Stephanie screamed at her mother that Sylvia was no longer breathing, but Gertrude yelled back that Sylvia was faking it. Horrified, Stephanie and Richard Hobbs both died trying, sorry, both tried giving Sylvia mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Unfortunately, it was too late and Sylvia died at 16 years old. When Gertrude finally realised Sylvia was in fact dead, she ordered Hobbs to call police from a payphone. When police arrived, Gertrude handed them the letter she had dictated to Sylvia a few days prior, stating that Sylvia had been tortured and mutilated by a random group of boys after having consensual sex with them. Gertrude told police that Sylvia had stumbled back to her house two days earlier with existing injuries. 
Police questioned Gertrude and all the kids present, but they recited the story Gertrude had drilled into them, that Sylvia was a prostitute who was abused by her customers. However, before police left the house, Jenny summoned up all the courage she had and whispered to a police officer, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Jenny's statement resulted in the arrest of Gertrude, Paula, Johnny, Stephanie, Coy and Richard for first degree murder. The other neighbourhood kids present were arrested and charged with injury to person. Sylvia's autopsy reported numerous burns, cuts, bruises and sores all over her body. All of her fingernails were bent backwards and most of the outer layer of her skin was peeled off. During her final moments, Sylvia had bitten through both of her lips, partially cutting through each. Her vaginal cavity was almost completely swollen shut, yet the medical examiner determined Sylvia was most likely still a virgin at the time of her death and certainly was not pregnant. This directly contradicted Gertrude's story about Sylvia being a sex worker who was three months pregnant. Her official cause of death was listed as an internal cerebral hemorrhaging and shock due to the severe injuries to her skin. At trial, Gertrude put forth an insanity defence, insisting she was not responsible for Sylvia's death. Her defence attorney claimed that Gertrude was too ill and depressed to control her children and what they did to Sylvia. Gertrude suffered a myriad of illnesses throughout her adult life, the most severe of which was chronic bronchitis. She was on several medications in order to treat her illnesses, and she claimed a drug fever had caused the temporary insanity, along with severe chronic depression that led to Sylvia's death in her house. Paula and the other children all claimed that it was Gertrude who pressured them to abuse Sylvia under threat of physical punishment. The star witness for the prosecution was Jenny Lakins, who held up under direct and cross-examination with surprising poise for someone who had been through what she had. 11-year-old Marie Banaszewski was another star witness for the prosecution, admitting, admitting that she was the one who heated the sewing needle before Gertrude and Richard Hobbs carved I'm a prostitute and proud of it into Sylvia's stomach. She also testified to witnessing Gertrude beat Sylvia and keeping her tied up in the basement. The physical evidence and witness testimony was piling up against Gertrude and her children. On May the 19th, 1966, Gertrude was convicted of first-degree murder. Paula Banaszewski was convicted of second-degree murder. Both Paula and Gertrude were given life sentences. The other minors were convicted of manslaughter and issued prison sentences ranging from 2 to 21 years. The Aftermath after the trial and convictions, Jenny Likens had nowhere to go. Lester and Betty were still unable to care for her, nor was her older sister Diana. Rather than going to the foster system, Jenny was adopted by the prosecutor and his wife. Jenny finished high school and was able to live a normal, happy rest of her life. Unfortunately, she passed away in 2004 at age 54 from a heart attack. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard and Johnny Banaszewski were all paroled after serving only two years in a juvenile reformatory. In 1971, Paula and Gertrude were both granted a retrial on the grounds of heavy media coverage. Paula pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was paroled from prison in 1972. Gertrude was once again convicted to first degree murder before she was sentenced to another life sentence. For the next 10 years, Gertrude spent her time warming up to prison guards and other inmates in the Indiana State Women's Prison, becoming a den mother to the younger inmates. However, Gertrude came up for parole in 1985 to the shock and horror of Jenny Likens and her family. A petition was circulated with over 40,000 signatures encouraging denial of Gertrude's parole. Shockingly, the parole board took Gertrude's good behaviour in prison to, into account and granted parole. 
She was released from prison on December the 4th, 1985. At her parole hearing, Gertrude was quoted as saying the following things regarding Sylvia's death. I'm not sure what role I had in it because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. After her release from prison, Gertrude lived in relative obscurity in Iowa until her death from cancer in 1990 at age 60. Good. Johnny Banaszewski died in 2005 at age 52 from diabetes. He had spent some of his adult life working with juvenile criminals and helping them turn their lives around. Coy Hubbard spent the rest of his life in and out in prison. He was later charged with the murder of two other men as an adult but was acquitted at trial. He died of a heart attack in 2007 at age 56. Paula Banaszewski gave birth to her daughter named Gertrude while incarcerated and the child was later adopted. After she was paroled, she relocated to Iowa where she still lives to this day with her husband and two children. Murder charges against Stephanie Banaszewski were dropped before the trial when she agreed to become a witness for the prosecution. She is now a school teacher and married with several children. Richard Hobbs died of cancer at age 21 in 1972, only four years after he was released from the reformatory. The house in which Sylvia was tortured and murdered in was vacant and abandoned after the murder until 2009, when it was demolished to make its way for a church parking lot. A granite monument dedicated to Sylvia's memory sits in Indianapolis, Willard Park to this day. Just makes you hate the justice system, doesn't it? It's fucking mad, isn't it? it makes that that was heavy. I'm, I'm I don't, I, yeah, I don't want a heavy one than that. That was a bit much. Like, don't go in. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. Like that's. I, I know obviously you could say it needs to be heard by people, but that... That was fucking heavy. It was hard, wasn't it? it yeah, so, quite, like, no, so nothing I've, worse than that. From I'm now still on. ill, but like that, like these are tears, like backed up. When I was, I was researching that last night. Yeah, know, I know. I, I know we're a horror podcast, out. but that's fucking t- that. That for me is just too much. I don't. I don't want to fucking delve into stuff like that because that is horrible, and, and it makes it even worse the fact that the the, the, the they still walked from it. Like she was just a baby. She was 16 years old. I teach kids that age. And, uh, and it's the only it justice you get. Sick. The only justice that you feel that gets served in prison is for, it's for like paedophiles and stuff because they get the worst prison life you can imagine. They get absolutely fucking. Well, she battered. became a den mother. Yeah, she was looking yeah. After kids. She actually got exactly what she wanted, looking after kids without having to pay any money because taxpayers paid it for her. Yeah. Yeah, it was fucking and awful. And then she that. died. She lived. She lived like triple what Sylvia lived. Hmm. She I don't really just, know what to say about it. She I don't, was just a baby. It's not really stuff you want to, I don't. I don't even want to speak about it, which I know is shit for a podcast. But like normally we make jokes about it and stuff, but that was just so fucking awful. I tell you what, when I when I first watched the film, because I didn't read the summary, I was just like, oh, it looks like a good film. So I watched the, the film's fucking awful. Not so I won't be watching it. It's not as bad as the actual case, obviously. There's another. Actually, I'm gonna rep another one. The Girl Next Door is loosely based on the case of Sylvia Likens, so there's a lot that's made up in A Girl Next Door that wasn't in the case. But an American crime, I believe the story is, with, I believe his name... No, I believe their name is Elliot Page. I think I got that right. Uh, Stars in it as Sylvia Likens, and that's a direct film of it. Right. But it's... When he was on about that, this is just... I, I don't want to talk about... The book's about, there, actually. If we look there, it's there. Oh, yeah. I don't want to talk about... I don't I don't really want to talk about the things that have been done because I don't want to hear them again. Like, like it was bad enough for him the first time. 
Um, but what just something to go off topic and still have a bit of a chat about was you know when you was on about the I can't remember what it was called when uh when like someone's just given up all hope so they just don't even try anymore. Syndrome, yeah. That reminds me of did I tell you is it the Pooh Keepsy tapes? Pooh Keepsy tapes, yeah. Pooh Keepsy tapes. That that's what she had the in girl. that after she'd been abused so long. She all she, she, she called her own throat in the end or something like that. She killed herself. Didn't yeah, because she? She, she wanted to be with her abuser. She, like she all she learnt was pain and mm. suffering, and that's all she become accustomed so to. So this was Sylvie, right? And this was. I, it's quite amazing how dead on you were actually. Fucking hell, yeah. And that was Gertrude. But she looked fucking dog rough after... Like, that's what she looked like in the end. She deserves the worst of the worst. She does. She rots in hell. If there is a hell. I don't believe there is, but if there is, I'm sure it's got a special place in but there for her. that... That's where she, That's how she was found. Fucking hell. That's awful. She was 16 years old. She had a whole life ahead of her. And you know what? She was known by... There were so many people that just said she was so lovely she was so confident so well spoken and maybe that's what made her a target yeah she was jealous yeah jealous of the daughter and bullshit played into insanity this is why so many people want to dismiss the idea of being able to plead insanity for murder because there's people like that that abuse it that fuck all did she have drug fever yeah she knew exactly what she was doing to that girl she within a few months like, I, I can't imagine. Part of me as well, actually, just bringing it up, to the parents, A, like, you, you've you've taken your daughter, well, your daughters, to this home, and then a few months later, they're clearly going to look different, and they're yeah. clearly going to have marks and stuff. A, and B, why the fuck couldn't they look after Jenny? When she, like, after she'd been I through such an, an awful event. I don't know. I don't, like, if I was to... If I was to give up a kid because I couldn't look after him, I wouldn't think I'll give him to someone who's got seven other kids because surely they're not fucking able to look after him either. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or nine other kids or however many it was it seven. Seven, yeah. Yeah. I dunno, it's it's just a fucking awful story. It's really bad. It's harsh, isn't it? Yeah, definitely the worst of it, and I don't want to go any lower than that. I don't I, think I can think of anything lower than that to be fair. I'd imagine this stuff I'd imagine there's stuff out there, but you've got to dig for it, haven't yeah, you? Yeah. I only did that one because I was thinking of, I'd watched the film and I'm in the middle of reading the book and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. But even I didn't know. Yeah. Because I've only, my knowledge is only from The Girl Next Door, which yeah. is the film and the book. So when I was actually researching the case last night, I was getting further and further into it and I was like, oh my God. Like that poor girl. She's Eloise's age. Right? Yeah, I know. That's what She's I was thinking. That, that's what I was thinking when I was listening to the story. That's why I was kind of like, I don't really want to fucking hear it. I know, I'm not in like a, a shit way to you, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to hear this shit because. But then, as well, to the point that she managed to fool a nurse, teachers, like school professionals. There's no wonder schools are so strict on safeguarding now when we have to take absolutely everything up. Yeah. You know, if I get. You've got a girl there who's had to steal a gym kit that her parents tried to pay for anyway. Yeah. And she was previously getting good grades and was really happy and things like that. And then you see such a dramatic change. If I tell a kid to write a creative writing story and they write something that I think's worrying, like if the parent whacked them or something, I've got to follow it up. Yeah. I've got to report that. I think... Uh... I think questions can be asked. It sounds in that story it could have been it was, stopped a lot. It was like the 60s, wasn't it? Like the sister as well. Why didn't the sister say something to the parents on the visit? Or 
It's that helplessness, I mean? anything, isn't it? Because she was suffering as well. Yeah, it's it's fear. It's fear of fucking being attacked. Fear of, and then like you say, just feeling it's not going to make a difference. So why bother? And you think those, the, you know, eight or ten kids from that neighborhood yeah. were all beating her. Yeah, fucking miss why I hate kids. And you know, but you know what? A lot of the kids probably told the parents, and the parents didn't give a shit. Yeah. Or it was like, oh, it's none of our business. Because yeah, I can imagine, like, she was known as, you know, like the crazy cat lady on the street. Like, she, she's the crazy child lady on the street. Yeah. That nobody really wants to go near, and it's sort of like, oh. Yeah, I know. But, yeah, it was it was heavy. I'm glad I've done it now. Yeah. Um, I don't even want to... I almost... I don't, I'm not in the mood to go around, like, go off topic and pace around with different jokes and stuff, because that's just such a... None of the cases do a laughing matters, but you can pick pick little bits out and go off on a tangent. But there's just without talking about the case again, which I don't really want to do. So you've said we've we've talked about this in a previous podcast, not going too far in depth and stuff. But we talked about capital punishment and the death penalty. Do you think that there are certain cases that warrant that? Yeah, now? yeah. I think that? I think I said that before. Anyway, I think I said yeah. Because we talked about suffering in jail, but she sounded like she had a fucking whale at the and time. It don't matter. You can say suffering in jail all you want, but who the... F- like, I bet there's thousands of other cases like this where the person should not see the light of day ever again in their yeah. life. And they're out walking the streets. But death's too quick. Like, death was too quick for that woman. Yeah, but the fear the fear of death is enough in itself, I think, with some people to... Like, that is your true punishment. Like... Well, I hope she's in hell for what she did. Like, if there is such a thing. Like, if... She, if you give someone the death penalty, there's no chance they'll walk the streets again. They don't. The loved ones should suffer because, and I know that sounds quite harsh, but that they should suffer because, not not that they should suffer, but like say if I did if I committed a crime that like horrendous that warranted the death penalty, and I got a death penalty. It would hurt me knowing that it would hurt you. Like it would hurt the family and yeah. my friends. It it would it would fuck up their lives and good. Like people's lives should be destroyed because of what you've done. Oh, God, that sounds so bad, but I don't mean it in the way it sounds. I know what you mean. Like, like you should cause pain. To, you should feel the guilt of causing pain to others because that's what you've done. And I think, like, if I got locked up, as much as it upset you, you know I'm still alive. You know you can come yeah. still visit me. It's not the end of the world. Whereas if I'm dead, you can you can never ever ever speak to me again. You like that? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I can never contact anyone again. Like, I'm gone. I'm off the face of the earth, and I'll be remembered with a bad fucking name. Like, yeah. that's that. That's a big thing. You've left. You've you've tarnished your name, and that's all you'll ever be remembered for. Like now, good behaviour and the other one becoming a teacher and stuff. And it's like that. That why are you allowed to change your name when you do something that horrific? That should stick with you for life. That should get fucking yeah. tattooed on you, like across your fucking yeah. face. What you've done. It should. But well, that's not our I justice don't know. system. I, just think, I know. I know that that somebody would have to administer that punishment, and to be honest, I think, I think quite a few people in that case would have done. But it it brings up to the concept: do an eye for an eye. So everything that she put Sylvia through, she should been put through. Yeah. But then it questions the idea of somebody'd have to administer that, and it it gets complicated. But you know, she's a lot of people haven't actually heard about this case, but. It's a really, it's a really important one, and in terms of evil, like she's up there with like Dharma, Bundy, John Wayne Gacy. Like I think she's just as evil. Yeah, she's def definitely up there. 
Ted Bundy didn't kill because he was malicious. Ted Bundy killed because he wanted to. She was mal malicious. There was something behind it. And I know there's not levels to murdering. Well, there is and there isn't. But, like, I think there's a difference between killing someone and torturing someone. I think killing someone's for the spot, as bad as that sounds, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the hunt. Um, it's very immediate, isn't it? Yeah, you're just doing it like to say I've killed that I've killed someone whereas torture you're enjoying the pain yeah. that you're putting someone else through and it's prolonged like she lived for months yeah like let's end it there yeah, yeah it's, a, it's just a fucking awful topic when I, I text Oliver last night and I was like Oliver my fucking story but you were fast asleep and then in the morning you were like I can't wait I was like okay yeah I'll, rem <laughs> I'll no remember for next time that's the worst I could probably come up with, though. But I, I did want to talk about it because it's not one that's often, it's not one that's often gone through, and I just, my heart breaks for her. Yeah, it's an awful story. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening yeah, as much as all of us enjoyed listening. Yeah, I, it's an interesting one, but it's just fucking awful to think about. Like you said, it puts Eloise. I feel better now. It's because I have. It's because I, it's cause of I have Eloise in my mind. Rest of the world, fucking hell, you're a bit ambitious, aren't you? Look, when people about hear that I'm listeners. doing this case, they're like, "Fuck, get on creeping at the family." So, Sweeney Todd Monday. Yeah, in case we wanted any more cheering up. Sweeney Todd's a good film. Sweeney Todd is cracking. Forty minutes in, about forty minutes into it now. It's such a long fucking it's, film. It's only two hours. Yeah, but it feels a lot longer because they're just singing all the way. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with you on that one. Ask me how many songs I'm going to sing on the podcast. On none. You're going to sing none. Can That's my do, challenge. Can I not do like snippets? But I'm not fucking editing oh, out no, three not, and a half I'm minute clips of you singing a song. No, I just want to do by the sea. It's my favourite one. Yeah, I, th I don't like the songs in them, but what? I know, but it's a good film. Like the yeah, when when the songs come, it. yeah, I know. There's too much singing. Like, there's <laughs> loads more singing than dialogue, which poses the point. Maybe it's just because it's a violent musical. Do you think what. if you just mute with the whole movie and just watch the scene? No, I, I don't mind the ones where they're kind of singing and talking. Do you know what I mean? It's not like a full on fucking like sing song. Worst pies in London sort of shit. Yeah, something like that. I can I can get along with that. But that fucking Joanna one, I was thinking for oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, for fuck's sake, just get yeah, on with it. I hate it. that scene, to be fair. Right, so anyway. tune in Monday for that. <laughs> We're now doing a double bill. We're now doing Sweeney Todd alongside it. I know. So. There's a little sneak preview. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, we'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening. Bye.